0: From the HBA Podcast Studio in New York City, welcome to The Medium Rules. I'm Alan Baldishan. Distinctions that you've drawn between innovators,
1: disruptors, and rewriters. Yeah, I mean, I think and have thought for a very long time that innovation is a useless paradigm and term. What about this
0: moment is creating this
1: kind of more seismic rewrite that you're identifying the bell is tolling like they will be affected i think there's institutional anxiety i think there is a general low-grade human anxiety and i think there is a deep generational and demographic anxiety that we're experiencing do you regret asking me questions now i i'm starting to
0: (laughs) how did you kind of synthesize that into this concept of
1: the rewrite. And I just kept going back to the same structure, which was we are really rewriting and resetting the planet. This is a different version, will have different implications, but this is not a new phenomenon historically. Listen, I want to thank you so much, Len. I hope you'll come back um,
0: and have an. No, you won't. Okay. okay. This is it. Buddy. Yeah, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> this was my one shot. I'm thrilled to have Len Brody in the HPA podcast studio today for his discussion focused on individuals and companies. Len has coined rewriters or what I might call super disruptors. Len's credentials and accolades are much too long for this podcast intro, and we're going to link to Len's bio on SoundCloud and on our website, but I'll do a quick summary. Len is an award-winning entrepreneur, venture capitalist, best-selling author, and two-time Emmy-nominated media visionary. Starting in the 90s with a company called Envia, which ultimately went public in early 2000 in a very high-profile way, Len has raised hundreds of millions of dollars in venture capital for multiple startups, and he has been involved in multiple exits. Len is a highly sought-after public speaker and has delivered keynotes at such organizations, which you may have heard of, as the G8 and the United Nations. Currently, Len is the co-founder and executive chairman of Creative Labs, a joint venture with Creative Artists Agency. He is also in the process of co-authoring a new book in partnership with Forbes entitled The Great Rewrite which is based on the successful documentary series of the same name in partnership with Forbes and KPMG. Finally, in a point of personal pride, Len and I share the same alma mater, Queens University in Kingston, Ontario, little known fact, also the alma mater of Elon Musk. So with that, let's get started. Len, thanks very much for being on the Medium Rules and looking forward to a great conversation. Thank you, Mr. Baldishin. Good to be here. Great. And uh so let's uh let's let's kick off by talking a little bit about your sort of your I guess classifications or or your way of understanding um you know distinctions that that you've drawn I think interestingly and and compellingly between
1: innovators, disruptors and rewriters. Yeah, I mean, I think and have thought for a very long time that innovation is a useless paradigm, and term. It doesn't, doesn't really mean anything. Like, I think it meant, it had meaning 15 years ago. 15 years ago, it had a technological meaning. It had an uh, inbuilt corporate meaning. Today, it feels it's just like incrementalism. I- innovation is is something that other people did before. You know, in, in, in a corporation or in a venture environment, it was what other people did. You had an innovation department, you had a research lab, you had tech guys and VCs and I think now innovation is in the water. It's what everybody does. It's, it's today's incrementalism, and it's part of everybody's responsibility. So it feels like a weak and dated paradigm. I also think it's weak and dated because it predominantly really dealt with two concepts. It dealt with technology predominantly and business models. And the, and the truth is, I believe that this, this era historically we're going through is something functionally very different similar to eras that we've been through before. But the tech and the business model story is not the whole story. There is a deep human story to this, behaviorally, physically, that doesn't get captured by innovation. So to me, innovation is just an outdated paradigm. We're living in a, in a post-innovation era. It's a word, it's like love. People use, the, I always say this, love is one of the defaults of the English language. It's a problem because you know you've been dating someone for a year and you can't keep saying i really like you so inevitably you got to say i love you and there's or n- "I love you <laughs> there's no there's no in between right there's no like defcon 1 and like defcon 3 like you got to go straight to the nuclear option mm-hmm. and i think innovation is the same there's just no you can't figure out the word to get to what you really want to say and so we overuse and Tend to use the paradigm in the wrong way. Disruption to me is a very calculated, specific thought, and and that is a real, uh, easy to understand paradigm. And, and the best definition is the sort of Clay Christensen definition of disruption, which I think is, in my view, the standard for that today, and it makes sense. Yeah. To me this why don't you why don't you tell why don't you say what that is? Because not everyone may be familiar with it. Well I I would have have to have read it uh, in order to know that. That would be helpful, yes. (laughs) (laughs) I I think uh, Professor Christensen's definition is really that you you tend to have the the classic dilemma, which is companies are focused on what they're focused on, and this disruption happens at the fringe and it happens at high volume, low cost. So they tend to they tend to move in a volumed way at the bottom of the pyramid low-cost, high-volume, deep entry points, and they tend to just eat their way up the food chain. And so that is a sort of classic disruption pyramid that I, that I think Clay Christensen would, would define and others would sort of see disruption Understood. that way. Yeah. Um, so when I, when I talk about this sort of paradigm about a rewrite, the, the argument is something different. We're not t- I'm not talking about technology and disruption and innovation in the traditional context. I'm talking about a deep sociological and geopolitical change that's going on in the planet, which is we are in a stage of the equivalent of pressing the reset on earth. This is a very different moment historically for all kinds of reasons, but the biggest driver is a human driver, which gets left out of those other two paradigms quite commonly. You know, those are more technological discussions or business model discussions. Okay. Do you regret asking me questions now?
0: I'm starting to, (laughs) but let me pursue this thread and say... What, if you had to pinpoint what about this moment is creating this kind of more seismic rewrite that you're identifying, what would that be? Or what what would some of those elements be that we might recognize? Or, yeah. or,
1: or are they recognizable? I think they are. And I think this answer is going to be grotesquely disappointing. But, but I think the answer goes back to the late 90s and the arrival of HTML. I, I think that you are... To me, uh, HTML combined with cloud computing fundamentally changed the world. Uh, and sorry, let me restate that. It's not just cloud computing, it's HTML compli- combined with cheap storage and computing power has really fundamentally changed it. But the one ingredient that is is completely necessary for this whole process was HTML. Why? If you go back and ask why the internet was important, it wasn't just important because it was a great way to get (laughs) cheap stuff from from Amazon and a great way to get news content delivered and Netflix. It was critically important societally because prior to call it 1996, 1995, human communication was heavily blockaded. So as a society, if you think about the history of mass communication uh, of our species, Go back to the Gutenberg moment, movable type, right up to television. They were identical. So they were one-to-one or one-to-many. They were broadcast in nature, incredibly expensive. So you couldn't just set up your own cable head or your own radio station. And thirdly, and most importantly, they were all regulated by government. So the, the base source of mass human communication was government regulated. And when you fast forward to the rise of the internet, all of a sudden... For the first time in the history of our species, you have a many-to-many vehicle where millions of people can speak to millions of other people with virtually no cost to their disposable income, no increase or change, and impossible for governments to regulate, as much as they try. As much as they try, and we've seen that, obviously. And the reality is what has happened because of that is for the first time, to the best of my knowledge, in our species, humans own their own communication at mass scale on a global level.
0: And low cost.
1: Yeah. And so when you when you own your own communication at scale globally, it fundamentally changes the power structures on the planet. It changes your institutions. It changes transparency in everything from consumer products to religion. And so I think that is the defining moment. Is if, you, if you drew your equation, a physics equation on the board, it would be something to the effect of HTML plus cheap storage, cheap computing power, equals societal change and i and i think that's what we're seeing and 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 in your view is that creating an
0: anxiety how is that uh how how is that manifesting that that societal change is it what's that shift look like from a from a human perspective from a media consumption perspective etc
1: yeah um well first of all i i think it's creating several forms of anxiety i think there is Human versus institutional anxiety. I think those are two different things. I think there's deep institutional anxiety because I think for the last 25 years, we've been telling uh, corporations and institutions the most annoying message of all time, which is innovate or die. Like if you had a nickel for every time somebody told you that, we wouldn't be sitting here. It's an
0: article of faith virtually at this point. Yeah, I I mean,
1: and so I think there is now a much more dysthymic recognition in all institutions that they the bell is tolling like they will be affected now i don't think everyone knows how they're going to be affected but they are much more willing to have that conversation than they were a decade ago so i think there is institutional anxiety clearly on the human anxiety front i think that falls into two very different buckets i think one is you have a human anxiety that is a general um I don't understand where the world is going because I, I I understand, and humans are horrible at historical context. We are borderline moronic when it comes to history. So because we're only alive on this planet for 80 or 85 years on average in the Western world, what we think of as normal is not historically normal at all. So when you start to see the world different, changing around you, you get flipped. So there's that anxiety. The other form of anxiety, which I think is... Uh, directly correlated to the time is the anxiety that I think kids born 1997 and after, you see incredible rates in anxiety and depression in kids born into the generation where they were attached or tethered to a device. And we see that statistically. I mean, you can see very clearly that depression, anxiety, and isolation are are on the rise. Now, there's lots of positives that are also on the rise with that. So... Yes, I think there's institutional anxiety. I think there is a general low-grade human anxiety. And I think there is a deep generational and demographic anxiety that we're experiencing.
0: Interesting about the, uh, about the, the, the kids attached to devices. I was, I was anecdotally just having this conversation with a friend in Toronto who was talking about the rates of suicide among college kids. And, and that's a serious issue. Yep. That, that's finally being addressed, but it's, it's at the fringes and it's a hard one to discuss. And there's no question that it ties into this to this anxiety that you're describing, um, which is a tough tough subject to cover. Um, how did you uh, sort of take these observations and, and and take this perspective that you've developed over your career, which is involved, you know, it, disruption, starting companies, investing in companies. How did you kind of synthesize that into this concept of the rewrite and, 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 you know, you're, you're really, you're really putting a lot of time and effort into sort of creating content and promulgating this concept. How did that come about? What, what's the story of how you sort of hooked up with Forbes and developed this program to kind of put out into the world? Yeah. So, and, and, and and I apologize. And, 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 and and is it educational? Are you, is there a
1: ground game there? Give me a little bit of that story. Yeah, so I uh, was co founder of a business in the media space in 2004, and we ended up selling that business in 2009 to the Anschutz Group in uh, Denver and LA. And Anschutz is a very large live sport and entertainment empire, great company, great people. Um, but, but the live entertainment business and the sport business is a pretty traditional business in, in context. You know, it's about physical people and physical places. and. Entertainment yeah. and media. Yeah. yeah, it's a pretty it's a pretty yeah. physical business, and I think it was you know I was heading up the digital and innovation kind of operations there, and I was trying to think of a way to explain to a group of folks that frankly weren't uh, that that tapped in or seeing a sense of urgency about the need for the for this kind of change, and part of that was I think a lot of people when they have these conversations at a corporate level. They get stuck in the mud on on the technological piece, and it's very difficult to have technological conversations with people who aren't technologists or people who just don't care or see it as frightening, and and it's easy to avoid and ignore. So I Funny, def- we see that with crypto right now, very similar, hundred percent, hundred percent. Well, crypto's complex, blockchain, very complex. Blo- blockchain is incredibly complex. So, um, I, I what I did was uh, we, we had a corporate retreat. Uh, for Anschutz and AG. And I was trying to figure out a paradigm to sort of bring this up a little bit and say, look, this isn't about the technology. This is about the people walking on this planet are fundamentally different than the people who walked here 30 to 100 years ago. So the people... W- forget, le- uh, forget this whole discussion about what tech you need and start thinking about the planetary change that is going on around you, the human change, the institutional change, you know, the rise of things like esports. where 30 years ago, trying to explain to somebody that people are going to be sitting and watching people play video games would have seemed uh, foolish at best. So I, I tried to develop a paradigm, a framework where they could look at it and say, okay, I may not understand the tech piece, but I can buy into the human change piece. And I was trying to just come up with a terminology for it and I just kept going back to the same uh, structure which was we are really rewriting and resetting the planet. And by the way, this isn't the first time we've done this. Historically, we've been through many resets of the planet before. This is not this is a different version, will have different implications, but this is not a new phenomena historically. And so we just came up with this term the great rewrite and then There's a old friend who was at the time the chief product officer at Forbes, a guy named Louis Dvorkin, and Louis and I were talking a lot about this concept, and I I can't remember if we were just talking about it randomly or he saw me speak. I I don't remember the story. I just remember seeing uh, him in his office, and he said, you know, look, we'd love to do something with you about this. Like, We think it's interesting, and perhaps we could build a franchise around it, and that was three years ago, and the rewrite has become one of the larger and certainly most award-winning um, content marketing partnerships that Forbes has ever done. So it's viewed, I think, now over 5 million times and grown significantly. So it's, it's a kind of a weird content marketing partnership that was never intended to be, but resulted in that.
0: Yeah, uh, they're, they're excellent. I would commend uh, and re- recommend them to anyone listening. Um, they're well worth your time. They're really well done. They're highly w- they're highly produced. They're intelligent, um, and uh, they don't last that long. So it's even snackable. Um, one more question there in terms of that content marketing piece: the companies that you profile as case studies are they? Um, how do you find them? How do you how do you kind of discover yeah. them? And and are they involved or? Yeah.
1: So there was an incredible writer that worked on the project with us named Don Steinberg. And he is a very astute researcher. So we would, as a group, figure out the chapters that we were working on and the subject matter. And we would just try to find the best stories that we could find that really idealized and captured what we were trying to say. So the most recent chapter in the series was around digital disruption. And really what that was about was like show people the path of companies that were really stoic and old and traditional that survived. And so when we did the research and Don was Dawn was incredible in doing that, we came up with two stories that we loved. And one story was John Deere, which is like the oldest of the yeah. oldest. Mm-hmm. And when you really dig into the weeds about John Deere, it's an incredible story. No pun because, intended. No pun intended. Um, the... The company was a was a hand tilling company when they started, and then they got introduced to the combustion engine, adopted the combustion engine, built the tractor, and now like one of the truly only autonomous vehicles that is actually working today are tractors. So, ironically, John Deere is kind of ahead of Tesla in the sense that they are out in the field working with autonomous vehicles, working with an incredible amount of AI and lidar equipment on their on their farm equipment and so so you see this transition from a company that was literally people with hand tilling to autonomous farm vehicles and you realize the challenge that they're under which is we are about to go from seven and a bit billion people to 10 and a bit billion people over the next 15 20 years and pretty unclear how we're going to feed everyone and so that science that whole piece of ag tech becomes really interesting so that's how we ended up with John Deere and then the Princeton library which was, you know just Princeton New Jersey's library it was just a super interesting story about like how do you take a space that was known for a product that is kind of like mentally questionable as to whether you need it or don't need it and how do you completely rewrite that experience and the Princeton library's done this incredible job it's this You know they kind of went from the library where it was like shh and it was all quiet where like there's only a few places in that library where you're quiet now the rest you know parts of co-working space parts of thinking studio parts of recording studio podcast facilities like they just kind of rewrote the story of what a library was as a community asset that's a great story i mean you know on that note
0: anecdotally again when i Started law school at University of Toronto Faculty of Law in 1990, believe it or not. I play one on TV. Um, They were in the middle of building what was the Boer Alaskan Law Library, which was a very expensive, big project. Five years ago, they ripped it down, literally ripped it down and built something that's not a library. It's uh, it's classrooms. The Bora Alaskan cafeteria. The, yeah. <laughs> the Bora Alaskan coffee shop, actually. <laughs> um, and Bora actually will get you your cup of uh, hologram Bora. Will, nice. Will actually be there for you. Please. Should
1: we do a whole episode on Bora Alaskan? <laughs> yeah, we,
0: we should. And well, maybe we'll hologram Trudeau in there while we're perfect, at it. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Um, we have uh, some Canadian references for, for, for those of you who are interested. Um, and I slipped in a Woody Allen reference there. I don't know if you noticed it. I did. You're, you're a genius. Um, I, I thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we've talked a little bit about some of your experiences and, and, and some of your background, but but t- take us through. You know, you you you've done a bunch of TED talks. You've made you're, you're a very uh, in-demand public speaker. You know, I, I think knowing you, I, I've seen that path track. I think coming to you now in your career. How do you, how does how do you become Len Brody? How do how do you how do you, how do you how, take us through some of the the stops on the uh on the via dolorosa of your career yeah, to get I, to the point where you really are coming up with some extremely, you know, uh, uh kind of big ideas. Um t- tell tell us a little bit about that stuff. Well, the
1: first question is why the hell would you want to be Leonard Brody? Uh it's not that interesting nor that fun. Um Quite truthfully, <laughs> the, the, <laughs> okay. We'll the, stipulate the. Um, my journey started uh, as very simply, which I think a lot of people does. So I, I grew up in sort of reasonable economic hardship, and I think when you grow up in economic hardship, you uh, it, it affects people differently. Some people get really v- motivated by money. Some people get really motivated by family life. I was really motivated by freedom. And so I never attached freedom to any particular uh, one path. You know, there was money was an element of freedom. Job skill sets were an element of freedom. Relationships were an element of freedom. Like I was just really motivated by the concept of freedom. Um, And when I uh, was in law school, I knew very early on I was not interested in being a lawyer. And when I articled, which, did you
0: tell that to the folks that you articled with? <laughs> um,
1: well, they should have. That know. might become,
0: come as a surprise to the former to the law firm formerly known as Heenan and Yes, they should have known that.
1: Um, you know, it was interesting. My story is as an uh, you know in Canada you have to article before you become a lawyer. Form of uh, servitude for a year. Yes, and I did something which was quite unprecedented, which was i had started build no time in one year (laughs) that's right i slept for six hours a day under my desk um what what i what i did was i i had built a practice representing professional soccer players as an agent and i was billing time like i actually had a bit of a business at the firm and i remember one of the firm's managing partners to be unnamed sat me down and said do you want to be a lawyer or a businessman and and i remember thinking to myself I don't totally understand the distinction. I mean, I get it, I guess, at some level, but those two things shouldn't be separate. And, and really what he was asking me was, he was asking me, are you prepared to follow and toe the line? Like, that's what he was asking. Are you prepared? It takes X number of years to be a partner. Are you prepared to do that? And my answer was no. And I just said it very clearly. And so I kind of pulled my name out of consideration for hire back as a lawyer. And I'd been with the firm for a long time. Like, I started right after first year law school. And I just knew very early on that I was not interested in uh, a job. Like, the concept of a job still to this day doesn't make sense to me. Like, I don't mean to sound... uh, flippant about it, but there are two things that don't make sense to me, jobs and vacations. They just don't register. Like I genuinely don't understand jobs. I don't understand how people who work, um, who aren't founders, what drives them and motivates them. And I think it's that lack of understanding that ideally, hopefully makes me a better manager because I am consistently in pursuit of the understanding of what motivates people to show up at work every day and to understand that and to understand what they care about and why they do that. Cause my brain isn't wired that way. Like I don't understand, you know, it's better to sort of understand it from that perspective than sort of get it yourself. Cause I really don't. And it's the same with vacations for me. Like when people say I'm going on vacation, I'm like, I don't really, what are you going to like, and what are you going to do there? Like sleep all day? Like I just, don't, I don't get it. My brain spoken is spoken
0: by a man who has no children.
1: <laughs> that is true. That is true. That is true. But 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 it just didn't work for me. So I um I had to divine my own path, and I got involved in all kinds of crazy stuff. We built. I've been involved in lots of companies that were successful, lots of companies that were complete and utter failures. Um, I have had more regrets by noon on a Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> many people have or will admit to in their lifetime so like it's just a bumpy road of figuring out what you care about and I cared about freedom and the speaking stuff is really a sidecar for me I, I have a sort of love-hate relationship with the speaking stuff like if I wasn't doing what I was doing I would probably be enjoy being a prof or a teacher or, so I like that component of it Um, but I definitely my road had to be an entrepreneurial road because I got no choice I, I, I really did I, I really didn't have yeah, a choice. And I'm unemployable. So it just didn't make sense and I and I associated work in the traditional context with a restriction on freedom.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, let me touch on Anvia uh, because I and many people who were involved in .com 1.0 at the time and I was back at that time at uh, Wilson Cincini. In Palo Alto, I remember we, we spoke on the phone, and I was like blown away by this IPO. Um, talk a little bit about that company and what that experience was like, and how
1: things have changed since then, and and, and maybe not changed. Um, yeah. So I was not the I was not the founder of that business. I, I was part of the founding executive. I, mean, I, I came on. It was founded really by.
0: Is uh, it Vancouver-based company? Is that right? Am yeah. I, am I right
1: about that? Vancouver and Seattle. So it okay. started in Vancouver. It was started by a uh, a guy who I learned a lot from. A guy, a guy named Glenn Ballman, who right. you know, still an entrepreneur today, doing lots of lots of stuff. I mean, we're not in touch necessarily, but learned learned a shit ton from Glenn. Uh, Glenn was the founder, and then he sort of brought a kind of support team around him, of you know somewhere between I would say fifteen and twenty people that end up kind of being like the founding core. glue core of the team, and and I would consider myself part of that. Um, the business was really an e-commerce business that that had a major pivot, which was, it started as a company called Mega Depot which was in those days supposed to be a window into the warehouses of the world. In other words, like a version of what Amazon is today, ironically, and ended up becoming more of an Amazon for small businesses. So it was really targeted at the SME market. Company raised a lot of money, grew very quickly and had real markers like it had real revenue, real success, real, real um, clients and a roadmap. Went public in March of two thousand, had a very large IPO, and it was affected like everyone else was affected. Uh, the good news was it was well cashed up, so it had time to sort of breathe. Affected by
0: the bust, meaning yeah. the, the the massive decline April in 14th. tech stocks. Yeah,
1: yeah. Last so, Friday, whatever it was. Yeah, yeah. So it was like any of those stories. It was affected, but it had enough cash and enough. Smarts in the business that it wrote it out and it's still publicly traded today. It's a bit of a different... It is. Okay. bit of a different business than, than when we were all What there. is the
0: business today? Uh,
1: they sell ping pong balls <laughs> online. That's yeah. a, I'm a huge ping pong fan. I yeah. I know. mean, you'd be yeah. surprised how many ping pong balls you can yeah. uh, it. They should a, acquire Paddle Palace. <laughs> that's, right. that's, a, that's a different business. <laughs> um, I, I think that the... They focus more on connecting small businesses to government RFPs now, which was an element of our business before, but not our whole business. Okay. Um, and I think they really focused on that and and became sort of US leaders in doing that. So great story. It was interesting. I mean, the, the biggest lesson from all of that was the same thing that I sort of said at the beginning, which is history comes round, you know, and- it's easy to look back at the dot-com era and think, oh my God, that was ridiculous. And the reality was elements of it were ridiculous. And like every period of mass paradigm or computer, you know, if you take a platform shift, when you look at the internet as a platform and you start to throw, you're seeing it exactly happening at crypto now. It's literally the mirror yes, image yes. of what happened. In We've the talked about, era. A lo-
0: about that a lot on this podcast, actually. Yeah,
1: I mean, what, what happens is you get... Uh, Cycles, you know, Carlotta Perez, who's an uh, an amazing uh, economist and and theorist around innovation, talks about this in her work a lot. Which is, you you have new platform, you have infrastructure building phase, you have kind of early platform uh, adoption phase, then you have kind of application phase, then you have total meltdown, then you have rebuild. And I think the uh, the phase that we were living through in, in the first. Iteration of of Web 1.0 was really the applicate the the platform layer. It was the applications that we were putting onto it. And at the end of the day, honestly, there are lots of things that made no sense. And there are a lot of things that you would probably do exactly the same today and see today in other markets. And it just, you you know, you got to be a good student of timing and history to sort of understand. When you know, how do you be on the right side of that fence versus the wrong side of that fence? I mean, the
0: reality is you cannot remove human agency from any of these massive innovation cycles and platform shifts, and to use your word, because people are out there trying to get their buck. And that drives those bubbles, and that drives that cycle. You have massive entrants going in, and that's that's the story of crypto, you know, and
1: uh I, I think. I think what you experience now is a phenomena that ties back to many other platform shifts. Like you saw it in the tulip flower market. You saw it in the industrial revolution. You're just seeing it at a much more affordable and accessible scale today than you were ever seeing it before. So I agree with you. The human, the human agency piece is, is a part of that. And... In some respects, that is how we progress yes. and how we move yes, forward. Yes, exactly. Is, That's the point I make. Yeah, you kind of you can't sort of you can't separate them out and say one's bad and one's good. Yeah, they go together. hundred percent. And yeah. and timing is about understanding. Like this is not my particular thought. This is I am completely stealing the words of Ben Horowitz from Andreessen Horowitz. Like when you when you look at a platform shift, generally speaking, the new platform is not as good as the platform you've got now. So it's difficult to sort of consistently look at it and say, we're going in that direction. Like It's difficult to make a use case today for a bunch of decentralized apps because the centralized stuff kind of works pretty well and the centralized internet works pretty well. And... Facebook being a prime
0: example of that. Yeah, yeah.
1: It's, di- it's difficult or to... Or, yeah, yeah, blockchain is just not technologically at the place we would all want it to be today, but <clears throat> it will be. And so the question is how you factor in what is the nuance and the difference of the new platform, the one little thing that makes it different and better. And in the case of the of the block, it's trust. You know, it's an incredible ability to maintain digital forms of trust that transforms a lot of transactional stuff that we do every day. But is it better than the system we have today? Probably not. But I think that's, the, the issue is we just have to be, in all contexts, better students historically of like stopping and saying, okay, wait a second. We've been here. We see it. Who went through this before? What did it look like? What are, what are the similarities, the dissimilarities? What are, you know, how do we lead our way through this? And you can draw those maps and those connections in almost every sector. I mean, you really can.
0: Great segue, because I'd love to hear about what you're doing with Creative Labs. Uh, you partnered with CAA. Um, everyone knows who they are. Talk a little bit about this project um, and, um, you know, what uh, what you guys are doing, what kinds of deals you're looking at, um, and how this sort of fits into your overall kind of worldview as it pertains to rewrites and disruptors and, you know.
1: Yeah, so, so CAA uh, is simply, in my view, the best brand in talent representation and pop culture representation in the world. And... And, and and when you looked at what I was trying to do in my life, I was trying to really get ahead of building new direct-to-consumer brands. I, I'm quite fascinated by the direct-to-consumer market. And there was just a confluence of events that occurred where uh, CAA had done an amazing job of building their own direct-to-consumer businesses. And instead of, you know, putting a deal together, they would actually make it themselves. A uh, great example of that is Funny or Die with Will Ferrell, which was, which was created and, and built within the walls of, uh, of CAA and by the teams there. And I think they had a desire to try to do this more systematically rather than kind of one-offs and uh, build a studio around that. And I really was interested in the same thing. So we partnered, uh, created a joint venture, which they are a shareholder in. It's an independent company. It's called Creative Labs. It's uh, independent of CEA, but works very closely with CEA. And our job is to try to identify new digital forms of commerce transactions, D 2 C brands, that we think we can research and scale and get to market quickly and use some of the advantages, you know, the unfair advantages that we have, which is really distribution and intelligence. And that's effectively the whole model. And, and it's, you know, there's lots of other great startup studios that exist, Atomic and Expa and Betaworks and Science. And and they're all amazing at what they do. Jim Human Ventures. Yeah. And I think inevitably, you know, I, I haven't run all the numbers, but my, my gut would tell me that if you've mapped up the startup studios against traditional funds, the startup studios probably end up giving pretty good, if not better, returns. And so partially it's because you you own and hold that cap table a little bit longer. It's a lot more work. It's a lot more difficult. But that was the model. And so we've been at it about a year and a half. We have great outside shareholders, great partnership with CAA, and we're kind of just beginning. And part of it is kind of drinking from a fire hose and figuring out, you know, how do you build? What sectors are you building in? Where, where is the market going? And how do you take a limited amount of resource and time and turn those into companies that we can really be proud of?
0: So are these companies that are, that, that are, that are media focused? Are they talent focused? Are they built around CAA clients? Are they principally leveraging CAA data analytics? What, yeah. what, what, what is the unfair advantage? That that let's say CAA brings to the table that that would sort of drive some of these opportunities.
1: Yeah, I think I think the businesses that we are building start with a couple foundations. So one foundation is uh, do we look at the research and the intelligence to see that there's growth and a and a white space or an, a niche of an opportunity that we can engage in that we think is interesting and unique and and that's number one. And pr- those are particularly demographic driven, I think. And then secondly, um, it does not need to involve talent. In fact, we have uh, several of our projects don't involve talent at all. So when it's right and it's the right fit and it's a product that we think talent should be attached to and we're both passionate about the project together because this is not about endorsements. That's not what we do. This is about building and being passionate about stuff. So we have to find the right fit. So when it suits, talent will get involved. Um, And that's a built-in advantage, obviously, that you can get them on the cap table and presumably... Yeah, although I don't think, I I think there's this assumption that simply because you put someone with deep reach in a market that therefore you have a great business. And you you don't because I think you have to, at the end of the day, product wins. Sure. And so you got to have a great product and you really have to have a frictionless experience that people understand why they're there. Like I am a huge believer that the companies that are going to win in the next era are the companies that are solving very clear problems that are frictionless experiences like the ride sharing example was a great example of that it was a problem that lots of people clearly had and they created an incredible frictionless experience now would that company have grown faster or done better with a celebrity attached as a founder or shareholder and there there are shareholders of it that are celebrities um i don't think that would have made a difference i think you're right um i think if we build products that people care about and they are frictionless and great experiences having talent who's passionate about that same issue gives you a leg up out of the gate but if it if it's not good and it's not working and it's not a good experience it doesn't matter who's involved the company's going to die so we 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 work with talent we also do stuff without talent like it's completely dependent on the product
0: do you have a use case or do you have do you have a company you can talk about a little bit that that's that's come out of this partnership
1: yeah sure we've we've built uh four or five to date uh, an example of one that we're, we're super proud of is a company called Blue Line Studios. So Blue Line um, is in the mobile game space. And so mobile games is a tough space because it's I don't... hit-oriented, I guess. Well, it has an element of that for sure. There There is a hit element to it. I think there's also an element of people not quite understanding how the sausage is made in, in that sector. And so lots of people have had bad experiences in in mobile so when we looked at mobile games we had to take a really serious look at it and for us it was a bit of a perfect storm we have this amazing team dean richards pauline moeller Uh, dean was instrumental in a lot of the building at ea sports that happened and gm'd many of the uh multi-billion franchises at uh, at ea pauline was the ceo of ea sports and then became the ceo of zynga and so we had this incredible team And they had a really, really clear vision, which was if you look at, and this is a great example of how Creative Labs works, which is looking at the numbers, looking at the white space and and navigating our way through it. And this is an example of a company that really wasn't talent or celebrity driven. And we just realized that the biggest category in mobile games is really puzzle and arcade. Big games, big categories, native to mobile, understandable to mobile users.
0: Somebody's already done Pong, by the
1: way. You guys realize that. That's taken. Uh, uh, I, I got to make a call. Hang on. Um, <laughs> no, we we um if you, if you think about puzzle and arcade games, they're growing rapidly because they're native to a mobile device. They're easy to play, but the heavy users, the heavy buyers of uh, of games, and the super users were really sports fans, and those two worlds had not been merged. So when they looked at that, they said, "Well, let's let's do." what we couldn't do at EA. Let's build a platform, a single platform where we can launch games quickly to market on the same platform within two months. And let's bridge sports sports and puzzles and make them into a franchise. And so first game uh, has launched in trial in Canada. The numbers are amazing. It looks like a winner, just looks like looks like the numbers work. So it's a great use case of how we found an amazing team worked with them you know dean was a first-time entrepreneur pauline wasn't um and we identified some white space and we built around it and we built it in a contrarian way because most people would have looked at that and said yeah we're not doing mobile we're not doing mobile games it's not it's not a not a thing we're interested i think think because
0: it's 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 so difficult to it, it, it it really is lightning in a bottle that you could hit on or miss on i would well let me let me i mean i'm sure
1: it's more data driven than that and i'm not a mobile game developer but uh, yeah i mean let's look at it another way I, i was saying this to one of our investors the other day look at how many mobile game take the mobile games companies that are generating revenue and put them up against the ai companies that are generating revenue today and see what the numbers look like i'll take the mobile game Yeah, 100%. And you've got games that are that... So it is, in effect, a hit-based business. But like any consumer market, there's a tail. And there's a lot of money to be made in the middle of that curve. That's fair. And and I think that's where you want to live, in the middle of that curve, producing really good niche uh, quality product that consistently spits out revenue and cash. And the nice thing about sports, the reason we love sports is because it's greenfield. So you can do puzzle hockey twenty eighteen, puzzle hockey twenty nineteen, puzzle basketball twenty twenty. So we're, we're we're pretty What you really to want that. to do
0: is addict kids. Yes. That's the goal. It's a good model. Yeah. Um sort of segueing and, and and maybe maybe, you know, just getting to sort of some some final thoughts here. Um Len Brody gets teleported twenty years into the future. What do you think blows your mind? Um, am I taller
1: in the future than I am now? <laughs> You're although, the same guy. Yeah, and, I don't care. And, and, I don't uh, care then. Um, teleported twenty years in the future. Do I get to see me twenty years in the future, or it's outside of myself? It's
0: outside of yourself. No, let's this say this is a fair question. Interesting.
1: Yes. Um, and let me give you a
0: little meat, more meat on the bone and, and and really what i'm what I'm getting at is these tectonic platform shifts yeah. and, and and you've talked in your you know your lectures and you, you talk about how much change has occurred even in the last fifteen years and how time is getting shorter and how things are accelerating yeah so given that, you one would expect that that teleporting twenty years into the future would, we would see a, a, a lot of change and it would really look much more different than we might anticipate. Because you might say 20 years, it's oh, two decades. I mean, I, I remember, you know, it's 2018. I remember 1998, you know, we had, you know, Napster or we, we had, you know, Internet Explorer. Change is accelerating. I think we all agree on that.
1: Yeah. Um, so it's it's 20 years in the future uh, you've got your own show on whatever replaces CNN. Yes. Um the funny Bal- it's in development so, the, uh, the, <laughs> the Baldish
0: news network. Yes.
1: Um i, I think the biggest thing you
0: Fake news 24/7. <laughs> I,
1: I think the biggest thing you'll notice uh, in 20 years is deep transportational shifts. So i think you will be in 20 years you will be deep into the autonomous vehicle era. So not to say that everything will be autonomous, but it'll be much more commonplace than it is now. And I think you will have much more optionality between, do I want to drive or not drive? Um, and that has deep impacts on the way we design cities. Sure, major a, secondary effects. I yeah, huge secondary, secondary one, effects. Yep. So I think that that's one thing that's going to be very clear. In 20 years, we are going to be deep into the into the AV era. I think the other thing that will be clear is you will have sorted in 20 years a better sense of how machine learned environments are going to affect particular uh job categories and and i think we have like it's it's hilarious it's the same mass paranoia people had every single time there was a major technological evolution we have no historical precedent of a mass technological shift accompanied by mass unemployment it just doesn't exist historically and it will be no different this time around it is if it is It will be a redeployment and a redefinition of employment but it's not going to be you know suddenly everyone's out of work because of ai and and robotics but i do think in 20 years you'll have a settling out of um what your doctor visit looks like differently in 20 years because of ai what your visit to a lawyer's office looks like how your children are educated uh, decisions around um, how products are served to you from a CPG perspective. So I think the two big things for me are you're going to be deep enough into the AI environment that we're going to see the world significantly shifted around how we live our lives today. And I think AVs will be a big part of our lives. I those will be two okay. big, big, big things. And okay. I do think also, by the way, you you are we are at risk over the next two decades of deep geopolitical troubles. D- deep issues that's
0: that's a uh, that, that's another podcast altogether but sadly I, I i i am as concerned by that topic as, as you sound like you are listen I want to thank you so much Lynn thank you um I hope you'll come back um and yeah, okay. have an no you won't okay no, this is it buddy. yeah wait, 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 wait. <laughs> this was my one shot listen thank you so much for coming thanks, it really buddy. is a thrill um it, it's been a great conversation and uh, hopefully look forward to more thanks Lynn. yeah thanks brother That's a wrap on this episode of The Medium Rules with Alan Baldishin. For more information, go to our website at www.hballp.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts.